Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, we'll be talking about why your decision, whether or not to accept the Bible's claim to divine inspiration and authority, will dictate the way you interpret every detail of the scriptures and why our worship services always end with the doxology followed by a benediction. We'll also introduce the new sermon series that begins this Sunday, a look at the final section of the book of Zechariah. We talk a lot about scripture in this podcast, naturally, but I wanted to spend some time in this episode maybe talking about what we believe about scripture, what we believe about the Bible, which scholars call the doctrine of scripture. I wanted to talk about it because on so many questions and issues that I come across, whether theological or worldview, it seems to me that what we believe what we assume about the Bible underneath those questions really kind of guides our conclusions. So I know that the PCA has some standards and some beliefs about the the doctrine of Scripture, and I thought maybe we could just kind of unpack those. Sure, yeah. I think the place to start for the doctrine of Scripture in our church is the Westminster Confession, obviously. Mm-hmm. And in the Westminster Confession, you find that in the very first chapter. So it reflects, if you think about it, exactly what you're describing, that that what we think about Scripture and how we interpret Scripture, uh, both the way we interpret Scripture line by line, but also kind of how we take it as a whole, will determine how we answer all the questions that follow from it. So... Uh, without getting into, let's say, the the nitty-gritty, line-by-line reading of the Westminster, uh, we'll try to keep it kind of high level. But basically, we believe in Scripture as the inspired Word of God, that the Holy Spirit has breathed these words, working through human authors, but that the result is the Word of God revealed to us by God, and that revelation is the basis for our faith. Okay, so one question that I've heard around this is: um, is is the Bible? You said it was it was revelation from God. Is the Bible revelation from God, or does the Bible talk about revelation from God? This sure, is, it's kind of a I mean a, a nitty gritty question, but sometimes people would say revelation is like only something God can do and the Bible's not God. So it's, it has to be distinguished. Is that a helpful distinction or not? Well, so I think oftentimes you'll hear people say that you don't want to put too much emphasis on the book, Yeah. right? That, that you want to worship God. Don't worship the Bible, uh, bibliolatry, that sort of thing. But I think if you step back and think about it, all we're saying is that the all-powerful God who created all things made a decision to reveal himself to us. And if that's the case, then we want to respect what he revealed and also the means that he used to reveal it. And the means that he used is this written revelation, this, uh, to use a fancier term, inscripturation of his word. So 
it isn't going too far to treat uh, the scripture that we've received as God speaking to us, because we believe that God, through the Holy Spirit, does speak to us through these documents, just as surely as if we heard an audible voice from God. Now, having said that, we acknowledge the humanity of the many different authors who wrote these books, and we acknowledge the, let's say, the the human aspects of their composition. So one obvious thing that that if you read the Bible, you, you can't help but notice is the different personality of different authors, right? The fact that that different authors have different vocabularies, different languages entirely in some cases, uh, different experiences. And all of these things are respected because God, in inspiring Scripture, doesn't overrule them. He doesn't take them over. They don't go into a trance and, and suddenly start taking dictation as if they were in a seance or something, mm-hmm. as if they were mediums. But God uses these very human authors as a vehicle to create these texts, which he declares are his word. And so we essentially take that at face value. So the other view, let's say the alternative would be to, to argue that, well, the Bible is not, you know, God writing to man. It's more like man's record of his thoughts about God. Mm-hmm. And if you take that view of Scripture, then you'll look at the history of Israel, for example, and you'll see the evolution of a monotheism over time and a very human and very flawed process so that where if you point out to me apparent contradictions in Scripture, I want to find a way to harmonize those Someone who's looking at scripture as merely a human record of, of religious experience doesn't have any need to do that because, of course, human experience of religion is various and often flawed. Mm-hmm. It's out of this mindset that you hear people say things like uh, the God of the Old Testament is is a different God from the God of the New Testament and that kind of thing. And I think most of those kinds of misconceptions are most easily addressed by actually reading scripture. And and then you see the continuities that are pretty hard to ignore. Yeah. I think that's helpful because, you know, you might be tempted to think about that view, the second view of scripture that you've just outlined and think, well, we can still learn some things about God or the Bible can still, be a guide to faith because we're kind of learning through the experience of others. But what's not happening there is actually God kind of cutting through the noise or the subjectivity of our experience or of human, you know, humanity and, and getting, you know, truth to us. When I think that that's more so what the Westminster is trying to say that, that even through the messy experience of humans, God is really communicating to us and not just to the context in which they were written, though that was true, but also to us today, you know, and through every generation, which 
Which is kind of remarkable. It is. I, I often think that if the Bible really was what some you know liberal scholars argue that it is, just a human document, uh, nothing more than that, it would take an extraordinarily pious person to still see the point of going to church, still see the point of living according to scripture. And there are people like that. You know, there are people sort of interested in spirituality who are comfortable with the thought of a Bible that's merely human and just sort of gleaning it for whatever insights you might want to fashion uh, and live your life according to. I think the challenge for me for that, though, is number one, I'm just not that good a person. I think if it's if it's not really true, I, I just don't see the point of jumping through all the hoops. And the other side of it is if Scripture really isn't this transcendent Word of God, it's hard to see how it speaks into situations where we are called to go contrary to the spirit of our times. I think one of the things that you see in like well-meaning religious communities who've decided that scripture is not authoritative is a tendency to inscripturate whatever the received wisdom of the moment is. And so you find yourself not worrying too much about what the Bible teaches, but being very zealous for what the culture teaches. Mm. The challenge for all Christians, I think, is is how to navigate those moments where the Bible directs you one way and the culture, your common sense, your upbringing directs you another way. Mm-hmm. A church like ours, which is committed to historic Christianity, to a Christianity that would be recognizable by the apostles and the saints of the past, we do often find ourselves having to take a path where the only logic of it is that it's what the Bible teaches. Like It's not the way we wish things were. It's not like our tendency or our bias. It's not what we would prefer. It's just what the Bible teaches. And so we have to take this path. Yeah. You can believe on the one hand that the Bible is just a religious book, but it's not divinely inspired, or if it's inspired, it's still got issues and flaws. On the other hand, you can believe, like we're saying, that no, this is this is from God. These are the books God wants us to have, and this is God speaking to us, and still have to worry through the weeds of, of interpreting what it actually means. But beginning with that that assumption, I think is half the half the fight in a way, you know, like obviously Christians disagree on a lot of things about like, you know, doctrine, doctrinal issues or how to interpret this passage. Let me see if I understand what you're saying. Like if we, if we accept the word of God at face value, like take its claims for, for what they are, then that gives us the best place to stand when it comes to interpreting like the line by line problems. Yeah, You know, if, if you're looking at the difficult passages from the standpoint of a confidence in God's word as, as inspired and authoritative, you interpret them differently than you would if, if it's just, you know, a human document. The Westminster Confession does address this in the first chapter, and it alludes to what's called the rule of faith, which is that the best way to interpret Scripture is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those you know, profound ancient insights which has led to 
things like the cross-references in the margin of your Bible, where difficult passages are illuminated in the light of clearer passages that seem to relate elsewhere, so that for faithful interpretation, we begin by trying to take that full counsel of Scripture approach, as opposed to someone who takes a more atomized approach and, and assumes from the outset that these things don't fit together and shouldn't be made to fit together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause if that was your view, you could open up page one and read the first few verses and you see that God creates plants before the sun and you think, well, <laughs> that's not possible. This, you know, I'm done with this book. Right. Something like that. I always say, you know, people ask the question, should I take the Bible literally? Right. And I guess the way I want to answer that is just, you should take the Bible however it intends to be taken. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. So when the Bible intends to be taken literally, take it literally. When it intends to be taken figuratively, when it's poetic, interpret it poetically. It's a mistake to take, you know, the figurative stuff literally. That's misinterpretation. So always take it on its own terms mm-hmm. and your interpretation kind of starts on a firm footing. And so our attitude towards scripture really could just be boiled down to that, that, that we're just determined to take scripture on its own terms. We're not pretending there are no difficulties. We're not pretending there's no complexities related to the, the process of, of human inspired authors. We acknowledge all of that. But at the same time, we see a God who superintends this process so that the end result is authoritative and is something that I can follow even when I cannot understand. One of our recurring interests on the commentary is liturgy. We want to spend time every now and then checking in on the different parts of our liturgy and reflecting on why we worship the way that we worship. And so in this episode, we're actually jumping to the end of a worship service and thinking a little bit about the meaning of doxology. So Cameron, you know from our collaboration on on music selections that, that my preference is always at the end of the service to sing the doxology. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's a fitting way to close our experience of worship. But, but let's talk about what's behind that. Like why this final moment in worship has a doxological character. Sure. So can I ask you first off, what does that word mean even? I, okay. You know, it's a kind right? of a strange word, but yeah, what, is, what does doxology mean? That's a great question. Uh, we should define doxology. Um, I had a professor in seminary who would always say, truly, this is theology that leads us to doxology. Mm. And he was kind of channeling the Apostle Paul there because you have, for example, in the book of Romans, these moments in Paul where he's giving us profound doctrine. And then he kind of interrupts the flow and transitions into praise and just glorifying God. And that's what doxology is, the giving of glory, doxa, to God. Right. And so glorifying God is is what we're doing in the moment of 
doxology, you know, praise God yeah. from whom all blessings flow. So doxology is praise. Okay. We've talked about how the the whole worship service is a back and forth between us as God's people and God speaking to us through his word. So my first thought is, well, maybe it just kind of makes sense to cap off the whole service by saying in a Trinitarian way, one last thanks and praise to God for his blessings. I like that the doxology that we sing includes those blessings because I think that that's what we have experienced that whole morning together, hearing the the word of forgiveness and the word of the gospel and communion, all of those kinds of spiritual blessings coming to us. And then we just say one last hurrah and thank you, Lord. I think that's actually a great way to understand not only the doxology, but what follows it. Because at the very end of the service, we are in a very sort of summary way repeating ourselves. Mm -hmm. That dialogue between human beings, worshipers, and God, our creator, we're essentially reenacting what we've just done. So we sing our praise to the triune God in the doxology. And immediately after, the final word in the service is not ours. Mm -hmm. The final word is God's. And so after the doxology, we pronounce the benediction or the blessing. So God's people praise him, and then God responds by speaking a blessing to them. And so at the ending of the service, we have that back and forth reminder, let's say, mm -hmm. of what we've just experienced in worship. The idea is that as we're sending the congregation out, we are giving this sort of final reminder of what just happened here, mm -hmm. the the conversation that we've just had with our creator. That's really theologically rich, and it kind of mirrors the beginning of the service as well, of course, because we have the call to worship, yes. which is straight from scripture, God speaking to his people as well. So I like, I love that idea, actually, how it's God calling us in and then blessing us and sending us out in a way. So it's, it's just God's actions kind of at the start, at the end, and we're, we're experiencing God's action and his goodness to us in that service. But it, it's God from beginning to end. It is. And I think it also... Like, it's one of those things that you experience, like, yes, there's theological riches to this, and it's, it's good to reflect on this and understand why we do what we do. But the way that you experience it isn't primarily intellectual. Like, as you're worshiping, there's just a joy, yeah. right? At the beginning of the service, when, when the call to worship happens, and there's, the, there's a kind of energy as we enter into God's presence and worship him. And then as we leave at the end of the service, we sing that doxology and there's a sense of uh, like, this is it. You know, this, this wraps everything in a bow and we're about to go out into the world, taking with us the blessing that we're about to hear from the Lord. And so I think there's a, like whether you understand intellectually what it means those who experience it in worship do carry out that that uh, heart understanding of what's just happened. Mm -hmm. and so even the youngest children, as they receive the benediction at the end, or as they shout out the words of the doxology, are experiencing the right thing, whether they they grasp the the why of it or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that you just use the word receive the benediction because. 
I know some of us have gotten into the habit of raising our hands, you know, mm-hmm. during the benediction for those few seconds when we hear the final, the final blessing of God, truly a receiving posture, you know, taking one last time, whatever. Exactly. Whatever and so when you say receiving the benediction, if you just think of the synonym, uh, uh, benediction is blessing, you're receiving a blessing. Yeah. Like people do in, in the Bible all the time. And so it's, it's, the, it's the right posture in which to receive the blessing. Well, Pastor Mark, we are approaching the end of Zechariah, or at least the end section. And I'm curious if you could say a couple words about what we can expect over these next few months. Sure. Well, it won't be a few months, more like a couple of months, okay? because we are picking up the pace in this last section. So this final sermon series on Zechariah begins in chapter 9, and it's going to finish up at the end of the book in chapter 14. And unlike in the past where we've really sort of zeroed in and and had a laser beam focus uh, line by line in some cases, or at least section by section, now in this this section, we're going to kind of take a, a big picture view and really focus on the, the messianic aspects of these prophecies. Because basically what happens is we have reached a a rather abrupt shift in the type of prophecy that we get. If you remember, we had at the beginning of Zechariah some more didactic, Haggai-sounding sermon-type oracles, and then we had these crazy night visions, and now we've been in this middle section where we've had uh, something more like those earlier oracles, but but very uh, teaching-oriented, having to, you know to do with fasting and some moral instruction and that sort of thing. Now we're going to go into, I think, what a lot of people would think of as like classic prophecy. Like it reads the way you think prophetic books are meant to read. There's just a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of judgment. A lot of strange, obscure nations are called out for various reasons. And in all of it, you begin to see in the symbolism, the emergence of this figure of the shepherd king, the Messiah, who is going to come and who does indeed come when Christ appears. And so what we're going to be looking at in this final section is really the coming of the shepherd king, the way that Jesus is foretold in these passages, and and especially in the little details that are mentioned in Zechariah that end up being markers in the gospel accounts. There's several things that happen in this section. We've already looked at the way that the triumphal entry and Jesus riding in on a donkey is actually a reference to Zechariah 9. And so we'll see several other things from the 30 pieces of silver that Judas receives. Uh, Jesus refers to Zechariah's words when he talks about the shepherd being struck and the sheep scattered. There are a few moments like this that we'll check in on and, and basically get a sense of the, the vision of Christ to come. Like we've restored the temple and now what? Well, now what is we're getting ready for the king to return. That's all the time we have for now. As you reflect on this episode, I hope the words of my seminary professor will ring true for you. Truly, this is theology that leads us to doxology.
Thank you, Cameron, as always, for your wonderful questions and keen insights. And thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. And in the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. And you could subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.